Hello, everybody. Welcome back. We are the Devils in the Details, the Exorcist TV show fan podcast. My name is Tina. And I'm Zoe. And I'm Gaia. And today we are rewatching and discussing episode five of season two, There But for the Grace of God Go I. Um, this is, I think I say it every time, but this is my favorite episode. <laughs> every episode is my favorite episode when I watch it. <laughs> but in this episode, to recap, this is a good one. Like, you just, you can't, forget about the other ones. This is the one. <laughs> this, uh, to recap what this one is, this has uh, Tomas and uh, investigating uh, the house uh, filled with, demon grace we have marcus and peter in some pretty pivotal scenes together on a boat we have uh the children going camping it's just basically more and more progression into uh the world of the demon and into the dark uh, depths of the abyss so uh thank you everybody for listening to us again and let's jump right in initial thoughts opening sequence uh what where were we with that it's a very good opening sequence. It has all the little like tales from the last season. So it has like the color change, the palette, the grays. It has um Andy seeing all the like the little silkworm bugs going That's the technical word for what they're doing. And it has him slowly realizing that something is really off and what he's been seeing is not what's really there. Yes, yeah, it's it's so that what we have is where actually Verity confronts him, right? Where she says, you know, who who is Grace? They're up in the attic together. Um, and Andy kind of snaps back at her and says, what, I'm not allowed to grieve for my wife. Um, and and it's, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty disturbing because you can see that in his, in the way that he acts it, it's very like, he's a man uh, conflicted and confused and scared. But also angry still, and, and and so it just packs a lot of punches in the very very opening before we even get to the intro theme. Uh, yeah, I, I really did enjoy it. And we find out it's uh, Andy and Nikki's anniversary, so we are starting we are starting to connect the dots, and we finally understand that it's not only the house right now that is. Uh, has been possessed before, we can figure out that that house is the the center of everything that always happened in the island. But we also know that it's something more personal, something that really touches Andy deeply, because as we said in the last episode, he never gave himself time to grieve for his wife. He's he's still in deny. Uh, he's still denying he's suffering. Uh, he throw himself into his work. He throw himself into loving those kids, and he's denying himself the time to grieve. And that's one way in for the demons on the island. Because they feed on torment, they feed on pain, they feed on every bad and negative emotion. And Andy is so full of them that 
it would have been a miracle if he wasn't possessed. Exactly. All all, all that pain that he's going through is, uh, it's exactly that. That's the demon's in, right? And what I noticed a lot throughout this entire episode is that every time somebody gets further into a demon, the the battle back to the demon, the way that they can get out is through somebody else. So just like, for instance, in this very opening sequence, when Verity says, like, who are you talking to? He snaps back. He snaps back to a a, a reality of, of, like, what is happening. And it's the first time he actually questions Grace's existence and says, you know, you're not real. And it's and if Verity hadn't been there, that that source of connection to the to the good part of the world, I think his downward spiral would have been even faster and harder. I loved. I wanted to. I definitely want to focus on the creepy like holes in his yeah. chest thing. Yeah, is that That's yeah horrible? That's terrible. But first, I would like to point out the scene in the kitchen. The scene in the kitchen is uh, one of the most important on the whole episode because it gives us uh, an inside view about Verity. We find out during this episode why she hates Tomas and Marcus so much, not because of who they are, but because of what they are. We see she is a style with priests in general, uh, she doesn't like religion when Shelby is trying to tell her about his beliefs, she shut him down. And we find out in this episode why she is so against religion and the church. But uh, it's very important also for another thing. Uh, for a brief moment, just a few seconds, while uh, Thomas and Rose are drinking tea or coffee, something, in the kitchen, Tomas asks her if she can think about someone in the house behaving in a strange way, in a way that is not normal. And she looks outside the small frame of the window, the small square of the window, and we see through her eyes Andy doing something outside. And that's micro-sequence inside a macro-sequence. It's the focus of the whole episode. She doesn't want to admit that Andy is the one Thomas is talking about. She knows it's Andy. She indicates that it's Andy to us, but she's not ready to admit it. So the micro-sequence in inside the macro one, the big one, tells us exactly who she is worried about. That's the most important point in the whole episode. We have someone pointing out to us that Andy is the one we are referring to. But she herself is so protective of him exactly. and doesn't want exactly. to hurt him that even though she knows he's the one that needs the, needs the help, it's, it's complex stuff. Oh, yeah. it's very complicated. And she's not ready. We see in that scene, in the way it was shooted, that she's not ready. And that's, a, that's hard to hear because I think about people who are going through this in, in our reality. You know, this is, I think this is a good, a good 
you know, allegory for what people go through every day when they have somebody that's in pain or in hurting and they don't know how to provide them those those services, whether you don't have the education behind it or you don't have the words to say it or or, or the experience. Uh, and, it, and it makes it a story that's all too all too heartbreaking yeah. to, to watch. Yeah. And also, even when you are feeling everything you just described, it, Tina, when you see someone who has the experience and the means to help this person, it's still so hard to admit to someone else that the one you love needs help, that some, most of the times you try to push this person away, even if you know this person can help your loved one is so hard to accept and to ask for help. And to accept and ask for love. Exactly. I think that's part of it. Yep. You know, like they, yeah. they, they sometimes, the, the ones that have the demon claws in them feel that they're not worthy of love. They don't feel that they're worthy of, of having that kind of attention given to them for whatever past experience and past trauma they've been given. So, um, all right. So that's, that's, that's important stuff. That's, uh, again, hats off to the writers here for, for creating these these complex themes and, and revealing them in this light. So re speaking of reveal, so there's a lot uh, that uh, that is thrown into this again in terms of revelations and, and confessions and and the releasing of, of, of things that happen. So before we can get into that, I just, I really want to go to something really, really shallow, which is the creepy hole scene. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's not as shallow, but it's like, it's just visually again. It's 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 a it's the scene that I'm talking about is where we have Andy. It's like immediately after talking with with Rose and immediately after talking with Grace, he has the little the holes on his chest and the bees like, fly yeah. out of it. I yeah. just I just of course being the weird yeah. fan, I just want to talk about it. <laughs> so yeah, basically it's that combination of it looks like buckshot wounds, but it also looks like you know a wasp or a beehive. Yeah, yeah. And um, it plays on that, I can never pronounce it, but you know the, is it Mixer, Pelixa, Mixer, Mixer, Tripophobia? Tripophobia? Oh, Tripophobia, that's it, Tripophobia. It was, yeah, that one, which I don't have, but I can understand, I can understand it. It's, it's small little weird things next to each other being weird, and it, it's creepy. And then also, because it does look like a nest, and it's like, and I think it's, is it hornets that come out of it? Which, yeah. I don't know. They look like hornets to me because they're, they're 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 angry evil bees. Yeah. So they're hornets, and they all come, and it's just like, and I'm just like, nope. I don't like bugs in any way, shape, or thongs, and I don't like pinpoint little icky bits. And I'm just like, oh. And also, it's like it's wasp nests that leave the husks behind, isn't it? So there's all like symbolizations of him being a husk, and because he's like hasn't been like treating his like mental illness from like the loss and everything and he hasn't been accepting that he needs help he's kind of like hollowed himself out to not dealt with it which is allowing something to come in and possess him and now he's starting to see the husk of the man he's become and yeah so it's creepy and that's also, brilliant yeah <laughs> Yeah. I'm in awe. Like every time y'all talk, I'm going like, "Can we write this down?" <laughs> this deep stuff. No, that that I yeah, hadn't thought of that either. That the the he is in this kind of empty pitcher, you know, kind of parallels back to yeah. what Marcus is feeling as well. Um, 
and it, and it also is paired perfectly with a creepy wasp coming out yeah. and going yeah. into his eye yeah. or his eyeball. Oh. Of course. Yeah, there's a lot, lot of themes of like emptiness and feeling like you're missing something in this series. And I think Andy's going through that because he's literally missing his wife, but he's also missing that companionship and that partnership. And yeah, so that those feelings of like emptiness and he's also missing that someone in his life to complete the world that he's created for him and his family. And then you've got Marcus who's feeling obviously like an empty picture because he cannot feel the word of God in him. And even Tomas is a little bit like empty at the moment because he's not entirely sure what he should be doing about certain things. And so, and even the children, they all came from places where they lost a bit of their soul because of the experiences that happened to them, which is why any of them could have been possessed in this. And only by being a functioning unit were they able to kind of, you know, fill up, you know, with love and joy and companionship. But, which is why it's so interesting that they go after Truck being the one that's used. And I know I'm just like jumping ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah but it's... But, it, it, yeah, they, they, it's all but it's like, so it's hard to stay, you know, scene to scene. Yeah, this. and it's it's yeah, because it's interesting they use him because he's obviously ASD, and he's got a lot of like you know the autistic tropes, and a lot of like autistic because obviously because I work with autistic children mm-hmm. is they're missing something that allows them to function as well as other like neurotypical people. So again, because he's missing certain things, he's missing certain defenses. So he's the easiest one to fill up with demonic energy and use because he doesn't have those natural defences, which is also at the same time really annoying because a lot of like people like on the spectrum and stuff can see things that we might not be able to see because they see in a different way. Yes. But he probably wouldn't have understood what he was seeing or feeling. So it's like sometimes he's got the strength to be able to see and witness certain things. Right. But doesn't have the neurotypical like structure to be able to like prevent what happened happened to him right and i and i love how they explain it still in a way that's rooted in science you know when he goes through we see visually the supernatural side of it a demon girl possessing him through some sort of voodoo doll and like hitting the thing so that's the supernatural aspect of it but verity even says afterwards like oh i woke him up you know this isn't this is being attributed to his being woken up during a sleep that and that's that's something that we can also go back to science. Oh, it's a brain chemical thing happened when he was awoken in his sleep state, and then he wasn't in control of his body. So, I, I it's it's still, but it's still a good question of like what what constitutes uh, somebody going into a a negative space? You know, is it something that is rooted in you know kind of a magical demon mystical thing? Is it something that's more chemical? Uh, and, and I don't think there is one way to answer it. You know, people explore this for, for yeah. thousands of years. See, I always saw it as that she was able to control him, not because of total like voodoo magic, because she triggered um, a seizure. And I think because there's there's like seven different types of seizures, and one of the seizures there's absence, which is where you just literally like zone out for a moment, and then you come back as if nothing happened. But there's another one where they only last about thirty seconds, but you kind of totally leave, but your body continues doing whatever action it was doing. So one minute you'll be talking like this, and the next minute you'll go totally silent, and you might just go for a little bit of a walk around in a circle, or you'll stand there and repetitively do something. So you'll repetitively put on a bit of hair, repetitively just tug the bottom of your shirt, mm-hmm. and then you'll just kind of go on a bit, and it looks like you're sleepwalking, but with repetitive behaviours. 
and I think she was able to know that he was neuro his neurobalance was a little bit off compared mm-hmm. to the other ones, therefore being able to trigger a response that looked like something that he would have. So he, she triggered in him that form of seizure and therefore she was able to be able to manipulate it to look like what she wanted to do. And then by that point, she was allowed to fully control him to make it get to a violent level for what he did to Rarity. Gosh, yeah. That's it. It was, it was really well done. I Thank you. That And that's insightful too, because people with autism, it's something that's not uh, well known of, of how to communicate with somebody that has it or what how they perceive things, how they hear things. And we can start pointing out that uh, Andy deciding to take his family outside the house, it's a way he's using to try to save his family. He now knows that the danger is inside the house. So he tries to take them out. But the problem is uh, he already allowed Gracie to come out. So he is the island that was once a safe place is not safe anymore because she was allowed outside the house. He helped her to go outside the house without knowing what he was doing, of course. And now there is this connection between them, the the thing on his chest, and it's the beginning of the corruption Gracie is going to bring into his soul and body and life. So uh, even if he's trying hard to save his family, we know this family is already doomed. Something terrible is going to happen, even if he's trying to keep it from happening. And uh, the most obvious thing he can do is to take them out of the house. And why are you going to take a bunch of kids with problems and a blind kid <sighs> outside in the woods for camping? Because you still, yeah. the, he still needs to find a logical explanation to give Rose. It's not like he can go to her and tell her, okay, I think... Uh, uh, I am having a, a, a big problem that is a little bit more complicated than the mental breakdown. Uh, I am having that one too, but I think there is something else too. So uh, let's take the kids and go camping. So that's That would have been a little bit too much for Rose to handle right now. So he decided, okay, yes. you know what? let's go camping because I need fresh air because it's my anniversary and I can stay here because I propose Nikki is here. So let's go outside. Let's let's try to, to be happy, to forgive and forget whatever is happening here. And he's trying, he's right. really trying hard, but we know what's <laughs> going to happen. No, exactly. And what I what I like about it is by by him taking the kids out camping and this kind of act of desperation, I've got to go, we're going to go escape. All of us who watch horror know that once you go in the woods, like, that's it. That's where, like, everything goes down. Like, that's where the zombies come out. That's where the thing comes up out of the grave. That's where the evil dead is going to come. Like, come on. <laughs> so we know where this is going. Yeah, the woods is, like, the worst place to go. It's like, just don't go to the woods. <laughs> yeah. Don't. Anywhere but I've the woods. I've never watched a film where anything good happens in yeah, the woods. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> 
It reminds me of that. Did y'all ever see that commercial that <laughs> came out where I think it was like a Geico insurance commercial where all of the people are running from the slasher, the big chainsaw guy. And they're like, where do we go? Where should we go? They're like, well, do you want to go to the truck that has the keys running right now and it could take us to safety? Or should we go to the scary barn that has all of the chainsaws hanging from it? And they're like, scary barn, scary barn. Let's go to the scary barn. <laughs> so they run over to the scary barn. They make the worst decision possible, but it's like typical of when you're watching a horror movie, the, the the people in the horror movie make the decision to go to someplace even yes. <laughs> scarier and worse for them. So they always but he's trying, make, you know, kudos. Yeah, they kudos are there. trying, but they always make the wrong decision. Come on, the first one is let's split. No, why? You want to split? <laughs> yeah. Why? Which is exactly what I was screaming in my head as Tomas is like <laughs> investigating the house. I'm skipping ahead again, but no, <laughs> with his <laughs> He's like, well, I'm just going to go inside and I'm going to figure we, out we what's are, happening here and start shouting. But, <laughs> but we are back on square one with Tomas. He did well for a couple of episodes and now he's back doing whatever he's doing. Oh. Yeah. Being a numpty. Yeah. Oh, I see that Marcus has told me not to do this thing and I've started to understand that Maybe I should listen to her a bit because bad things happen. Oh, no, nobody's home. I'll just break into the house. <laughs> Why not? It's like, especially since they had that scene where, like, you assume like, the demon passes over the ceiling. Yeah. And it's just obviously it's just the camera going for a Thomas follows it. It's like, right, you've seen the scary ghost thing. They've gone in. What's the best option? M go maybe find them camping in the woods and seeing this okay and being support. Or break into somebody's house that's got a demon living in it by myself yeah totally and it's just like and the demon's just like what the fudge are you doing here i'm just gonna play with you you're yeah, an idiot exactly <laughs> even because he knows he knows that he can be easily trapped inside his own mind so why not that's a perfectly brilliant plan why not alone with a demon of course where does he go up 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 in the last floor of yeah. the house of course so he can't he would never be able to... the best place yeah. to go in a house the yeah. <laughs> so what exactly it was either that or the basement well, well either one either... that's just because he didn't know if the house had a basement otherwise he would have gone there of course we you... know <laughs> We know. Surrounded by chainsaws, probably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, but I love his. He's. I can't help but love it when he's walking around and he's hearing things going boom, 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 and he keeps following it. And I'm going, God bless you, like you brave little dummy. Like, he's. But he looks good when he's doing it. I mean, like he's he he he's got like serious face and then concerned face and then kind of scared face, but I'm still courageous face. Like everything about that, I just I love all the screenshots people have and they put on Tumblr so I can continuously watch and go, oh, you're cute and you're scared and you're dumb. Yeah, he's exactly like a child. You tell him not to do something, you can rest assured that he is going to do that thing. Just because you say no. <laughs> <laughs> but, well, so we're spending the time. We Marcus needs to start telling him, hey, go into the house, then he'll do the opposite. 
It's like, I think it'd be a great idea to break into some family's house. Great idea. Then he would have been like, oh, no, I don't want to do that. I'm going to go to the woods instead, which is probably, he would have probably been the most awkward thing in the woods. He would have been found in the house going, why am I in this house now? <laughs> whacking my head against the wall. <laughs> but 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 to, to to speak seriously on on the Tomas scenes because it it was all kind of one connected scene. It was it was broken up between the episode, but it leads all the way up to the big climax with you know Grace Grace's up there with the doll. But I I do have to give a shout out again to the way that the directors created the big floaty like books and the stuff around him and he's shouting at the top of the, his lungs he commands you it was just uh it was perfection uh, and to have that paralleled with everything that truck was doing with verity uh it 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 was cool to see as and then he transitions into his vision quest or whatever that was it was i loved it yeah absolutely but that ooh. It's all yeah, filmed. Totally. But it also gave us another insight. He has his Bible. He's uh, exor- trying to exercise this entity. He's feeling close. And it's not having any effect on grace. That could mean that uh, we were right in the past episode when we theorized that the demon on the island is more ancient than Catholic religion. Because really, Grace is not having any reaction. Grace is like, uh, who the hell are you and why are you here? Right, right. I'm, right. I'm trying. More annoyed than I'm trying to mind my own demonic business. Why are you here? And what exactly are you saying? Because I'm not sure I understand you. Tomas dying and feeling the death that all the people in the island felt and died. And it was beautifully done. And we realized that, uh, once more, we realized that is the, the house is the, the real focus of everything bad that is happening it's the house everything is happening in the same house and the attorney what did they say attorney vane what does he say uh the the the, the, in the vision uh, eternum vane eternum vale it means eternal goodbye oh yeah yeah i like that adds a Again, it adds that mystical because of the Latin connection, that religiosity piece of it. And 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 again, it's still creepy. But every time I hear somebody speaking in a different language, I'm like, ooh, <laughs> demons. <laughs> oh. The the island witch connection too, which we see in his second vision, where she you can actually see how she was affected by the demon, throws her child into the well. And then Tomas also is drowning and has uh, all that water all over him, which was great. I just, I just love that for more than one reason. <laughs> well, we c- we can still appreciate a wet Tomas. Come on, yes, <laughs> yeah. we can objectify. Yeah, yeah, of course we can. Come on, we objectified <laughs> Marcus' arms all the time. We can objectify a wet Tomas. It's only <laughs> exactly. Fair. exactly. It's only fair. <laughs> Yeah, so let's continue to talk about Tomas, who's ah, beautiful and 
tortured and beautiful yeah. and silly and and being a numpty as per usual <laughs> being a numpty, <laughs> I like that. Even though he is being a numpty, it does work really well just to show off this this demon's kind of power. The fact that she's kind of testing him out. Like, there's no way he would have got into that room if she it didn't lead him there. And Thomas still doesn't realize how easily these things will lead him about because they kind of like because they can because they see something so and she just wants to show off a little bit and it's all it's all like well you know what you've come up here if you're going to be here i'm going to show you what i can do and there's nothing you can do about it i am just going to play off show that i can like you will think you're doing this massive exorcism and all this powerful stuff's going on but actually that's just me kind of as a side thought going woo, i'm entertaining you when really i'm actually focusing on this job I'm doing of trying to separate out the family, trying to isolate them. And Thomas just kind of falls for it all. And then, yeah, as you say, taking on that vision quest of like, this is what I could do to you. I could do this to you over and over. And there's nothing you can do about it. You cannot find the root in all this. He's shown so much because at least like at the beginning of the series, he, like he found that song and that route to call this, like, I can't remember the name of the, the the woman, the exercise, right at the beginning of the series. But he finds his route in. In this one, it's less him having a vision quest to find something and more her just raking him through this massive ordeal just to totally stress him out. And there's no way with that much stress going on is he going to, like, perform an exorcism or do anything well apart from feel totally yeah. discombobulated. Yeah, yeah, like the the fact that he's thinking that he can he has any kind of power to stop her at this point is pure pride. It's pure like uh, uh it's it's inexperience, it's naivete. And <laughs> I do love that Grace has this yeah. tiny little thing visually. It kind of harkens back to my love for anime characters when usually the tiniest cutest little girl is the one that's the most powerful in the room. Like, I will kill you now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's nothing creepier than an overpowered child. You're like, hey, small child. Oh, right, you're right. Kill us all. I know it's it's jumping ahead to the end scene, but I really admired how they went from her tiny stature character and grew her to become Nikki at the end. That again, just the image of that that person rising from behind the portrait. That alone is is terrifying. It's terrible with the pillow face there, the visually terrifying and the idea that now this tiny monster is revealing its true form again it goes back to like anime and comic book stuff it's like this is my true form grows into something much darker but then again they split the script on us again when he takes off the pillowcase and you see that it's been it's nikki or the visualization of what he thinks he needs and loves and oh it, uh, it's yeah there's there's something very creepy and they do it they play it so well that what Andy needed at the beginning was to feel like he was being a good father he couldn't mourn for his wife because he was so concerned with being staying together and being a good father for his family so the demon appears as a child in need as because so, that's what he needed the most as it goes on this this demon girl becomes more and more like her tone and the way she presents it like we'll be together daddy and it's not saying daddy in a like daddy you're, it's, it's more of a like this kind of 
getting that slightly yeah. pseudo-sexual like vibe of like and then this is why you feel that this demon presence is so female because when you think the picture of innocence you think of little girls first no offense to little boys but when you want sweet innocent caring you think of little girls because they're the most innocent they could be the most harmed and therefore it gives you that connection of you want to either mother them and protect them and then she slowly like when she changes and it's revealed as Nikki the thing he wants most is that because it's obviously the anniversary and he's admitting that he hasn't grieved for his wife and he's been running from his problems but then she turns up and you know she's in her nightwear and stuff and the, and the demon is making such kind of like a sexual connection to him and also the reason I think I feel this so much female power in this is because the demon knows how to use femininity to trap these male characters because all those all those murderers and stuff so many of them were men murdering their families and stuff and if it wasn't men murdering their families it was mothers murdering yeah, their sons yeah. so it's all this theory of femininity and female power and the way that we can play that off the way we can either seduce of innocence or seduce with and, and, and then on that same vein and perverting that innocence perverting the love perversion of you know the just just going from this this sweet kind child to to then this what is eventually going to be this very sinister you know nikki person character and it's and it's constant the perversion of you know when the witch throws her child into into the well you've seen that the parenting has has been distorted yeah. in such a way that it it it's evil. Yeah. It is yeah. evil. Not only that, uh, but when we see Nikki in the end uh, and we remember how Gracie looked like, we can see another way the demon is hurting Andy because Gracie could have been the biological daughter they could have had if she was still alive. Not only that, oh, yeah, so... Uh, it's even one more thing they are using to taunt Handy. Look, look what you could have had with Nikki. Isn't she beautiful? Isn't she the little girl you could have fathered with your wife? Ah, too bad your wife committed suicide. That's, that, that's terrible. That's terrible. That's the worst oh. thing you can do to a man who has lost everything. Oh, man. Yeah, I hadn't thought about Grace, too. They, it's, yeah, I'm sure that they did that on purpose to make her look yeah. like somebody. The, the child that could yeah. have been. Oh. And uh, what, what, what Zoe people? was talking about, it's, it was beautiful because it was uh, the representation of how things changed when... Catholic religion took power and became the only religion because before that moment the female figure was worshipped and was seen as equal to, to the gods. The goddesses were the same as the gods. Then a religion based on a man who was the son of God and everything, but on a man, a male figure took power and then all male figures raised once again and tried to destroy 
everything that was related to the feminine field because women had to be controlled because there is nothing more powerful than a woman allowed to express her power because their connection with nature, their, their nature, their, the very nature of a woman to be able to give birth, it's something so powerful that men always feared it. The only female figure almost as powerful as Jesus Christ is the Holy Virgin and she is a virgin so she was untouched she never can be compared to other female figures in the past and it's possible that this female entity is very pissed off at what was done to her and all entities like her. So she's, uh, uh, she's forcing men to kill children because that was the most powerful revenge a woman can take over a man. What is the most important thing for a man in the past? The bloodline. To pass his power, his, uh, his reign, his legacy to to a child, a male child. So what is the worst thing you can do to a man to kill that legacy? We have a beautiful oh my God. example of this in uh, ancient Greek uh, tragedies, uh, Medea. Medea was the daughter of uh, one of the um, sun gods before Apollo. She was a goddess on her own. She fell in love with a mortal man. She gave him children. And at some point, he decided that, uh, oh yeah, she was a princess, but she was from a barbaric region. So he needed to a, a stronger marriage to a more suitable wife and she casted her and her children away to marry another woman who had more noble heritage than Medea herself and what did she do she accepted it then the day of his wedding she sent him clothes stained by blood and she made sure he would find the bodies of his children. She made sure he would never have other children ever again. And she reached her father, the god of sun, leaving him to grieve, knowing that what happened to his line was all his fault. <sighs> That's... No, hell yeah. hath no fury exactly. as a, a exactly. woman scorned man I mean woman <laughs> wow oh so you see so all that thank you Gaia for that incredibly insightful and historical piece of of how female and male characters in our history 
you know, have <laughs> not been, not, not have, not, they haven't been on the same uh, <laughs> viewpoint sometimes. I think it goes to a, again, a deeper philosophical piece, which is what, what is God? Who is God? And how does, you know, our perception of religion and all of that are taking it in? How can we use that, the truth, the word to do good or to do evil? So what I'm getting at is we have uh, Shelby and Verity in the woods having a conversation where Verity is clearly in pain from a past traumatic experience where what was it somebody tried to pray the pray the gay away and and Shelby apologizing for them not that he needs to and saying at first they were misguided you know they took that truth of what it is to be a Christian and they used it in a misguided sense and she said misguided and he goes and he corrects himself evil because you can take that that divine truth again. We're, all we can do is reach for it. We do, we don't know what exactly it is because it's it's the it's the big elephant that we all just get little pieces of or trying and trying to, to to reach for. And he says, because and in his faith, which is something that I ascribe to, it's my faith as well, that God knows that you're perfect because God created you that way. And so we, as the continual trying to reach for God, can can use what we think, like the Bible, we'll use it for, well, this is what we need to do. We have to, uh, homosexuality is bad, so I've got to fix that. I know in my heart, that's evil. You don't do that to somebody. <laughs> that's my that's my viewpoint. That's, that's an evil thing. But we have to continuously reach to others and guide them in the way of the truth through through listening to when when god is speaking to us or speaking through somebody that is that is guided in the right way and shelby is being guided in the right way he's listening to what he believes in his heart is is the truth but then again that that, that begs the question who do you listen to which which when is god is speaking through somebody in the correct way you know and and um it's, it's just it's, yeah it's a lot. of course lot even because uh, what god wants uh, what he means who he is those are all very complicated questions and i don't think we are suited to answer them but what we can do is to understand that the words of god were translated and interpreted by man so at some point uh, why the invention of printed characters changed the, the history of the church and the history of religion? Because like that, with the Bible translated in the different languages of the world, you could physically take the Bible and read it and see for yourself that not always what your priest, what the church was trying to tell you was what was written inside the Bible. So that that's when things changed. When we got the tools to read and understand the Bible alone, because uh, you can be the best person in the world, the most educated, you can be the Pope, but you are still a fallible man. 
So what God is trying to tell in us must be something more private, must be something between us and God. Um, when man put their mouth in something so important and so deep, it's always going to be failable because men are failable. They are trying, I'm pretty sure they tried their best, but at some point, uh, there is why we think that homosexuality is a sin. Because at some point in the Bible, there is that passage in which um, horny men uh, chased angels because they wanted to have sex with them. They wanted to rape angels. One, we were always told that angels are a sexual creature. So why is that? Why do you think that those angels in particular were male? If you just told us that they don't have sex. So, of course, it's something that men could do. Right. It, it doesn't mean that God thinks that homosexuality is a sin. Even because if we are created in his image, we can't be so wrong. So uh, what? He, he created us and he makes us sin just because, oh, you know, I'm bored. What can I do? Oh, yeah, let's create it homosexuality so some fool, crazy extremist can burn them. Because, you know, that sounds like fun. If we believe that God is good and is uh, almighty good, he would have never done it. So, of course, it was a man interpretation. Of course. And why? And the why? Why would they put that in there? Because what it comes down to, I'm sure, and historians would probably tell us, it came down to the people of time wanting ways to control. Yeah. And not only. Not only. We can even say that we are talking about 2,000 years ago. So we were a lot less in the mm -hmm. world. And I can even arrive to say if a king was homosexual and he didn't have an heir, the whole kingdom would fall in the hands of the enemies or in the hands of someone who wasn't blessed by God because we should remember that the bloodlines, the, the king's bloodline were always blessed by God even after Catholic religion was took power. Uh, you were king because God wanted you to be king. So if one bloodline had to hand for, because the king was uh, preferred men instead of women, of course that would have been a problem for that kingdom. But from there to claim that homosexuality in general is a sin and you deserve to be burned, I think that it went too far. So I think... All, all this, I think, leads perfectly into a very important conversation and, and, and very good choice on the writers and director's side on Marcus and Peter's relationship. Huge scene with Marcus's revelation, his confession to Peter, what he's been through. Again, this is a huge scene. Again, I loved it. I, I loved everything. I did. They, they handled it perfectly. And, and 
all the deeper pieces that were there that we're talking about were also revealed here. Where do we start with Peter and, and, and Marcus? Can we start with Peter and Marcus? And it, oh, it's, so, it's so beautiful. It is so raw, I think is the best way to describe this scene. So raw, like just raw emotions. A, the acting, I mean, you could, I could never get enough of Ben Daniels, but his acting, that to be that raw, to let his guard down and to show just how broken and lost he is, and to have a, a person that he can have that vulnerability with, that he doesn't have to be the leader, the father figure, the priest, to finally just be him, and then it kind of breaks him a bit. But only by actually breaking was he able to kind of, like, find himself again. Like, I think, is that all those expressions of, like, you have to hit rock bottom to go back up again? But he had to admit how much PTSD he was carrying around with him. He had to let go of some traumas. And sometimes the only way to do that is to admit how much you're carrying and that you can't carry it all alone. And yeah, that's what he did. Absolutely. And... and... That that Peter was there again. Uh, it kind of introduced us at the start of the podcast of how it takes another person to kind of reach in and to pull you pull you in to, from the darkness. And right now we know that Marcus is lost, or or is is still seeking. We'll say he's not lost. He's seeking. He's seeking his his identity. He's seeking his connection with God. And and. I think that Peter is the vessel that God is speaking through right now to say, I hear you. I hear what you've been through. And then he creates that connection too, where he has also gone through his own trauma as, as a war veteran. And, and through that connection of shared painful experiences, he's able to not only reach out, but Marcus is then able to connect So, with some minor tech difficulties, <laughs> we have now <laughs> back into the world of podcasting part two, which is uh, the, I think is the best part of the entire episode <laughs> with Marcus and Peter. So, um, to recap what happens here, we have Marcus and Peter in, in a very uh, vulnerable state with each other on the boat. I, I'm just here to hear everything Zoe has to say. <laughs> Me well, too, absolutely. I, mean, I, I I touched on all of that, like the heartbreak and the tragedy and all the, the beauty of letting go of feelings. But did you notice how it was another scene where they used the camera was filmed from the bottom? So it was positioned low level looking up towards them. It's, no. it's one of those wonderful, it's, it's, it's the Marcus Keene like crotch shots that they like to do where they film him. <laughs> From slightly below, going up the torso. They do it a lot in the yeah. show, and I'm like, I'll always be grateful for it because I'm like, it's such a weird way to frame a scene. It's like, why would you free frame it from like slightly down below, crotch to chest to up? But yeah, <laughs> I I didn't notice that, but now that I'm thinking about it, yeah, I see I see Peter and and them from the bottom, and yeah. this it's that dimly lit. It's just it's, it's so beautiful. Why do you, why did they why did they do that why did they choose that for this scene do you think this is what I don't know why they chose that because normally when you have a scene where it's two people having an intimate moment they kind of show it like you they did the like you know the long shot of looking at it to kind of frame them in the 
context of the scene and then it's normally a close-up of the intimate moment you don't normally get it from the bottom so it's kind of felt almost voyeuristic like they're having an intimate moment and you're sitting there like literally like me like some slash goblin going <laughs> looking up at them like yes boys kiss please kiss <laughs> so I, don't, I don't know if they were meant to film it like I was being a voyeur on the boat but you know they kind of they did yeah I don't know it, it depends on like what you're reading into it like if you're reading into it like something that shouldn't be happening so it's filmed in a slightly like ooh, slightly at a distance this is a moment we shouldn't be watching or slightly in this like this is a it's it's just it feel very different from like a a hetero kiss compared to all the rest of the times like you know hetero couples have kissed on this show yeah. which is normally quite direct I mean you do also get the beautiful direct shot or it could just simply been that they were filming on a boat and there was nowhere else to put the camera because they wanted to... <laughs> <laughs> otherwise just... it would have been in the water so like oh, there's only about this much space between them and the camera so we're just going to have to put it on the bottom of the boat because if it's anywhere yeah. else the cameraman's going to be in the lake yeah, yeah. Well, it, I I have a feeling it probably is more than just the practicality side of it. I think there was something to it. They they put a lot of thought into how even they were gonna create this moment uh, between the two men. There was actually the one of the original uh, visions, and I think they did shoot it. Was when they when Peter and and Marcus actually made love on the boat yeah, as well but they decided against that so they went with they went with this pure idea of like we want to go ahead and just have this this initial intimate kiss yeah. between two men which is uh, the likes is unseen on on at least for american networks I've, I've watched a lot of tv in my life and i've never seen uh two men of their role of their age too yeah. in, in this kind of um platform in this kind of uh spotlight which i i again i was just so happy it's to see very you know, it's, it's beautiful rare for a genre show like like other tv shows regular like if you're watching dramas or anything on hbo and stuff like i mean it almost sometimes reminded me of some of the kissing scenes that were in oz the 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 kissing scenes if if guy you remember them were kind of filmed in awkward angles to reflect the awkward spaces and yeah. the awkwardness of this relationship because initially like Beecher was a straight dude that went to prison yeah and exactly. he was just coming into himself and finding himself through this entire like journey and this scene is reminiscent of this because of the way it's kind of it's kind of awkward um, it's in a kind of awkward place. It's a person who's awkward with himself, but it's also intimate, but it's not for everybody. It's a scene yeah. that's just meant to be for these two guys. Exactly. And it's very reminiscent of some of the like, yeah, the it, way the romance was filmed in Oz. Yeah, it was beautiful, even because the way they filmed it, uh, it in my opinion, it was mean that their story had to stay inside. Because if you... Re because if you remember, there was uh, uh, to have sex in Oz was forbidden in Emerald City, and yeah. uh, when they tried to take their story outside the prison, but not just the prison, outside their own cell, everything went to hell, and whole hell yeah. broke loose. So it was even a way to tell uh, that 
that intimate moment had to stay between them because it was something precious, it was something fragile that had to stay protected between them. Yeah, and I think it goes the same for this. It's like it's a bubble moment. Like that moment on the boat is very much a moment in time between them for them. And once they leave the boat, they have to go back to the reality of the situation. And it's also, it's quite coded that that's true for quite a lot of like, like, you know, LGBT characters. They can have their moments in their safe spaces. But if you put it out in the real world, that's where it's more likely to be judged or torn apart. And it can't be allowed to exist in such especially with Marcus and Peter, it's still really fragile because while Peter is a little bit more confident about who he is, like Marcus isn't. Marcus is just discovering these extra layers to himself and that he can be a man, a priest, a man of God and a man who wants to be with another man. Yeah, exactly. Even because Marcus now is a priest above everything else, he still feels... Uh, he is a priest, even if the church doesn't want him anymore, he still feels loyal to what he was told all his life long. So he's in a very delicate position. Peter is uh, a member of that small community. Peter is a, a former army soldier. He he knows who he is. He's well aware of who he is and what he wants. Marcus is uh, is like emotionally Marcus is like a child discovering the world for the first time. And uh, he wants to be a part of that world but at the same time he doesn't want to say goodbye to to his old life because he knows his call still lays inside that part of his life he knows he won't be free even if the church doesn't want him anymore he still hope that god will want him back so it's uh he is living a conflict he is literally living a conflict right now because he knows deep down that all the things he wants can't be put together they can't exist in the same life for Marcus. I get the sense in the way that Ben acts Marcus's character that he's afraid that part of what he has lived and gone through can spread almost like a disease to anybody else that he lets in. There, there's, there's a sense of, of fear that he could taint the, the people that get too close, taint Peter, tainting even um, Tomas. And 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 it comes from I think a, a a real place of when you see something happen with your own family, maybe your own father, uh, like in his character, has this pattern of behavior of of destruction. To take that internally and say, um, I could potentially hurt somebody in the same way. So wanting to keep that person who's reaching out for love to keep him at arm's length, and I and you and when. Peter and he come together, it's it's almost like this, he let himself kind of open up to that being okay with being loved. And that's for, for me, gave me so many chills watching it because he surrenders himself to somebody else that is opening him to, to, to him. So it, there was, there was a lot of, there was a lot of emotion packed into that yeah. scene while I watched it. It's um, got to be so difficult for someone like Marcus to be vulnerable. 
But as I was saying, yeah, I think there's something about being vulnerable and opening yourself up, being a very pure and delicate emotion. And I think by being pure and delicate, you can kind of, you can open yourself up and then you can hear more when you're feeling, when your defences are, you're not so like, and, and, and all coiled because of stress and worry and guilt and self-loathing. Yeah, well, you you mentioned this. I would love to hear your thoughts on what. Why do you think when Peter asks Marcus, "What do you hear?" and he says nothing at all, and then and then Marcus is very happy about that. That confused me a little bit. Like, why doesn't he want to hear God? But why is it that when he hears nothing, he's actually pretty happy? It, it seemed like he was kind happy. of took it in the fact that he's been praying to to God, and he's got like a no signal. Like he's hurt, like there's a door shut, like, like, it's just like the, the number's been disconnected. There's, there's, but he's so happy because he hears, he hears the nothingness, like the, 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 the connection, like, so he might not hear words coming back, but the, the block is gone. So like, there's a connection. You can actually like the other person stopped, like leaving you up the phone off the hook. So you can't phone. So you would just like, they would never connect, but now there may be a ringing there may be something is like so when when he's ready to hear the words and when God's ready to speak to him that that path is now open to him again when before it was just like he'd shut a door in himself because we always assume that God is still speaking to him but he's just not able to hear it because he's got so much guilt and self-loathing and just like conflict going on now he's unburdened some of that he's you know unblocked the way to hear the word again you can't hear anything at that moment because at that moment god's like you take this moment for yourself you enjoy this moment for yourself i don't want to speak to you right now because this is this moment you're having here with peter on the boat is for you and then when he returns to his mission then he'll be ready to hear the words again very nice yeah i that's a cool take on it thank I, you i like that i really like your interpretation it's almost like it's a peaceful one. It's like he's finding that kind of the peace and the quiet. And and sometimes when it's too noisy in our heads, maybe that's the voices of the other side, the doubt and the fear and the negative self-talk. And, and to finally have that turned off too, to kind of breathe a sigh of relief and go, oh, peace and quiet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> As a teacher, you probably know it well. <laughs> oh, goodness. Yeah, peace and quiet. You know, honestly, <laughs> I, I, I'm totally afraid of too much quiet because I'm so used to hearing everything and mostly my own voice and all the shouts and all the things telling me that all the stuff I have to do and then if I don't do it, the guilt. If you actually give me a peaceful moment, I sit down in silence. It's terrifying because I'm worried that, A, the only thing I can listen to is me and I'll just have a go at mm. myself and not working hard enough. But I never, I, don't, I never quite get to that place where you can actually just relax and listen to the nothing and enjoy stillness. Yeah. So... That's something I struggle with. And I can imagine, like, how like often do people really sit down and listen to the stillness? Because actually, if you ever go to a beautiful location that's totally isolated and you go out, or my sister is currently in Vietnam, and I remember when I went there 10 years ago and I went to Halong Bay. And Halong Bay, you go out on the boats into the lake of Halong Bay, and it's some of the most beautiful, peaceful, there's nothing there apart from the, maybe the occasional sound of some water slapping against the boat, but that utter perfect peace is actually a beautiful thing to hear. But not many people sit down and take pleasure in 
actually the the nothing and stillness that's all around us because we've got our own voices in our heads just telling us to do stuff all the time. So as we enter our writer's room right now, we're going to try a little bit of a, of an article analysis. Um, after we had our tech difficulties last week, I stumbled upon an article from The Economist about research done uh, on, on sperm cells. And these sperm cells, uh, the, the baseline was, is mental illness something that can be passed on generation and through through biology through through the blood through so what they found was that there were these mice that they would agitate and by putting them the, by agitating them i mean they would change them from cage to cage that's the way that they created stress and a and simulating um what what happens in an abusive place when you when you experience a lot a lot of stress so what they found was that these mice when they had babies uh, those baby mice had something in their chromosomes that replicated the stress that the dad mouse had. So then they exhibited the behaviors, even without being moved from cage to cage, they still exhibited a lot of the uh, stressful um, and the behaviors of, of fear of other mice. And there were other things that just kind of, even though they hadn't experienced it themselves. So it basically implied that mental health mental illness can be passed down at least in mice and what they're trying to do as researchers is find ways to alter chromosomes and, and eventually with the long-term effects of altering chromosomes of humans that may have gone through generations before them abuse so how can we alter that so that way they don't have what sometimes we call oh that just runs in their family they just happen to be oh th those you know the barker boys they're just crazy oh those you know they're which can sometimes we call it sometimes a curse. I just I, I I'd love to hear y'all's thoughts on the idea of mental illness being passed down and and being and physical abuse being passed down generation to generation. Um, just just general ideas on that. It's it's kind of one of those things that you sometimes have to separate, and it's hard to, especially like there's there's mental health issues, and then having what well, being sen, having learning difficulties, having special educational need difficulties, because so many obviously because it's the field I work in, so many children have mental health issues because they have learning difficulties. But the learning difficulties may have been something they're born with. But a lot of them come from parents that have mental health and learning difficulties. And because the parents didn't learn any coping, coping mechanisms for how to deal with their own things, when they raise their children, even from the ages of like not to one, the children automatically, it's like nurture versus nature and all that kind of, the children automatically um, don't have the coping mechanisms instilled in them when they're babies. So when they grow up to a little bit older, they come across as very anxious children. So the time they get to me at the ages of like, you know, six to 11, a lot of them, you see a lot of mental health, high anxiety. So there's, there's an experiment they do, and you can look it up on YouTube, where there's a mother looking at a baby, a baby's a couple of months old, and the mother's all smiley, 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 and the baby's all happy, 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 and they're just looking at each other face to face, like la, 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 la. And then they're giggling, the baby's going, ha, ha, and then the mum just stills, like completely stoic face, and it's just like... So the baby's like, ha, 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 And just can't cope, because there's no facial triggers to give the child any indication that this person looking at them loves them anymore, cares for them, and will want to 
look after them. So all of a sudden, child gets totally freaks out, totally terrified because you have no idea how important it is to just smile back at your baby, just to smile, to give eye contact. So it develops to know that you're looking at it because you care. And when children miss those early steps, then they can develop learning difficulties. They might not even be born of learning difficulties, but by not being given like those tiniest things, like being smiled at enough as a baby, they develop the mental health and the learning difficulties and a whole host of behavioral problems that kind of get worse of age unless you find a way to rebuild, which is what we do in our school, rebuild and fill up those little gaps that they missed from their early development. So. It is interesting to like the experiment in my saying that like you could pass down mental health genetically and I'm not sure I completely 100% believe that. Mm. I believe that those mice probably didn't learn coping mechanisms and something in their demeanour in the way they looked at the children, they didn't know something that would have naturally been taught in tiny, tiny little mousy baby stage. Mm-hmm. So those kids those baby mice grow up into anxious mice because my parents are so anxious that they probably just like and then and then there's all kinds of things like things happen in birth like another syndrome that happens a lot is something called global delay which doesn't really have it's, it's not really like it's a global delay is kind of a term given for children that clearly have learning difficulties and mental health issues but they're not like, you know, it's not dyslexia, it's not dyspraxia, they're not ASD, they don't have cerebral palsy, they don't have some of the other like labeled diagnoses. And it just means that something happened in their youth to delay their development. And it's just kind of blanket term of global delay. So, and that, so that's another thing that you kind of find a lot. So yeah, it's, it's very tricky kind of when you want to separate, like, can you pass down mental health? And I think you can pass down learning difficulties and coping mechanisms that trigger mental health responses, like, and like, it's all because I think it's, it's, it's a lot more complicated than Absolutely. I think. And it's just like, and that's, and it's always something like fascinates me because like, obviously they use it a lot in supernatural things. And once you start like working with people with mental health issues and learning difficulties, you start seeing the supernatural. It's like, well, is that supernatural? Or is that actually just someone that like has mental health issues? I don't know if you guys have seen the film, The Barbadook. Yes, love The Barbadook. Barbadook. Okay, so I watched that film and that little kid in it, hands down, has a special needs diagnosis. So I remember when I first started watching the film and my husband was watching it with me and he's like, oh God, that child's annoying. And I'm like, oh goodness, this child is annoying. And it's just like, no wonder the mum's so stressed out. And then I was like, oh, no, that child has special needs. No, hands down, that behaviour is so non-neurotypical, that's anxiety responses, that's triggered, there's there's a trigger to a change and transition in its natural environment. A child's got mental health issues. That child is ASD. And then you start thinking, so is it seeing the Barbadook because they're truly being haunted by the Barbadook? Or is it because the child has autism? And also because of the stressful situation of being a mother to a child of autism, are you having that shared delusion? And that's both of your various different fears manifesting. And the Barbadook is like, 
And by the end of it, they kind of come to terms with their issues, their mental health state, their learning difficulties and things. And that's why they kind of semi-tame the Barbadook. It kind of becomes part of their life. But at any point, it could flare up again if there's a new transition and stuff. But like, when you start realising things like that, you start reanalyzing what you're seeing in horror films. Barbadook is definitely one example of that. Dark Water, which I showed you guys, it's it's like, you know, the horror is all about fear and isolation and stress manifesting in its own ways. Uh, Hereditary. It's actually, uh, did you watch yeah. Hereditary? I haven't watched that one yet. I want to. I won't, I won't give yeah. it away, but it, it has very similar themes of, of... But you just notice how much horror is actually all about your mental health and also how maybe more people than you think have learning difficulties and how their responses to situations are totally different from people who are neurotypical and what they might see that others don't. Uh, agreed. And, and I think there's so much more conversation that needs to happen about how more humans than, than we think are experiencing these waves of sadness and these waves of 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 doubt and fear and it comes sometimes comes in this feeling of this wave of almost to the point of like i have a demon like there's there and, and that's why i think a lot of in our human history there's so many stories created and the lore created around the existence of demons because they are within all of us and can come in this great deluge um in, in groups of people in mass, we have examples of people having mass hysteria where we have a connection within each other and we feel it. So um, how, how we just as humans can explain it and interpret it, it's still just so, I, I don't know, there's, there's still so much uh, to learn about there's, it. There's one thing that always interests me when you watch documentaries of exorcisms or generally films about exorcisms, have you noticed how the person possessed or especially in documentaries and people going to get like exercised are female because yes. females yes. tend to be more open about anxiety and being stressed. But societies and cultures put such a stigmatism on stress and anxiety that so many women in these cultures feel like they're possessed when really society is putting that stress on them. They're not possessed by demons. They're just not allowed to talk about their mental health issues or their stress, especially in certain like work environments where you go, you're stressed and people go, oh, you're stressed. Well, we're all stressed. And I'm like, there's stress and then there's anxiety and then there's depression and then there's mental health things. And it's just like, you see it with every documentary, the people that go for those treatments are women feeling like they're possessed. when really they're probably women under high levels of stress in predominantly male-based societies being told that they're hysterical and over-emotional and therefore they're not meant, to, they, you know, they need to hide that stuff and repress those things and stop acting like that. But you could be possessed. But I think um, horror genre is the new fairy tale. You you know how fairy tales were born in history. They were a way to teach children about the dangers of the world. So when we talk about uh, uh, Little Red Riding Hood, we talk about the wolf. Uh, who lives in the forest and the child is told to be careful. But that's only a way you are 
telling the child to be careful because the wolf is in truth a pedophile preying on you. So fairy tales were born as a way to teach children about the dangers that they could meet in their life. The orc, the orcs in fairy tales, they are all serial killer or pedophiles because there were things you weren't allowed to talk aloud about to your children. So you needed a way to make sure they were careful. Horror genre is uh, nowadays fairy tale. So they are using a language that many can understand to explain things like mental health issues, anxiety, delusion, mass delusion. And they are using this form to uh, show as many people as possible that these things are real. The mental health issues are real and they are not something that only happen if you are weak. They can happen to everyone. There, there is nothing to be ashamed about. It can really happen to everyone and anyone in any part of the world. It doesn't matter if you are rich, if you are poor, if you are white, if you are black, if you are Latino, if you are an alien. It doesn't matter if you are a man or a woman, a child. It doesn't matter because it can happen to everyone and anyone. And there is nothing you must be ashamed of you should just be allowed to ask for help in any horror movie when you ask for help to fix the problem to defeat the monster to exorcise the demon to kill the witch to stab the vampire in the earth you are finally allowed to be free the point is you you are allowed to ask for help because those problems can be fixed and solved. You just have to ask for help and no one should um, make you feel guilty because you ask for help, because it's, it's your right. You, are, you should always ask for help. That's what I see in horror movies. And those, I think my favorite type of horror movies are the ones where the heroes that have been plagued by the demons and the vampires when they do end with triumph after, depending on their friends, once they've come together, joined forces, you know, locked their crossbows and been able to fight back against it. The ones that have always sit uh, in, in, in the darkest place for me and I, and I try to avoid them are the ones that really do end with so much uh, hopelessness. Like it's, it, we've now surrendered. Now the, now the demon has taken over the, the, the evil God has taken over and all of us are history. And I, I, and I admire those horror films and TV shows, but I can't watch too many of them because it puts me in a mental state of like, well, then what's the point <laughs> if the yeah. bad guy is just going to win? So yeah. that's why I feel like the exorcist, this show always ended at least the last, the, the seasons ended with, there are triumphs, you know, because they find 
their strength and they find their resolve and they find the connection with somebody else that may be going through something similar and they battle that demon together uh, or sacrifice them one of themselves for, for the greater good. That's, those are the best kinds for me personally. <laughs> yeah, But again, I, I, totally I admire some, we, there, there is a place for horror that, that gives us that glimpse into, you know, what could happen if left untouched and if we isolate ourselves and you know, that, that darker yeah. side. This is too look, much. It's too much for me. Look, look at the the first Romero's movie. Uh, uh, I don't remember the exact title. The the Night of the Walking Dead, the Day Over the Walking Dead. One of those that titles. Day um, is the second. It should be Night of the Living yeah, Dead. Yeah, that's one. The I, first think. One, I think. one. Yeah. black and white. One. Yeah, exactly that one. And at some point, uh, the the black character is the only one alive inside the the shop where the the whole movie is shooted and he survived the the zombies he is alive and the army finally arrives and he's so happy he starts to 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 jump up and down to to attract their attention and what happens they shoot him because he yeah. is a black man yeah because yeah. he is a black man of course so all horror can be used as a social um as social, um, how, how do you? Oh my God! Commentary. Commentary. Social commentary. Yeah. commentary. <laughs> That's one. Okay, thank you. Those are my favourites. I love horror and social commentary. <laughs> That's where you'll find me nestled in. Yeah. No. I ha- no, I haven't. No, me neither. Don't. I, I desperately want to see it, but I haven't seen it yet. Uh, I do have some fun facts. Do we want to get to that? Oh yeah. No. Lighten the mood. Lighten. Okay. So this week's fun facts come courtesy of, again, the best detective sleuth in the world. Ide, you are fantastic. And thank you. Do not ever hesitate to <laughs> spam my direct messages with those amazing facts because it's, again, I feel like I've I've been in the fandom now for long enough. I'm like, oh, yeah, I know this stuff. But there's still stuff. I'm like, oh, my gosh, how did I not see this video of uh, like Slater behind the scenes doing a show, a set tour? So fun fact number one, uh, for the forest scene, you know, where the kids were all camping out, that is actually those forests. That's not a real forest. They're not out in the woods somewhere. They build that entire forest set on their stage. It's massive. Uh, Slater released a, a behind the scenes tour um during during last season and i highly recommend it just google it or direct message me for the link or i too i'd has it too um but it's really cool because you can see just how much uh, time and money went into the creation of these sets the forest is, is huge 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 he also shows you a little bit of how when uh when a scene is too expensive to fly back to that particular area what the prop people will do is actually just recreate a mini version of the scene. So where um, Mouse and Bennett have a conversation, what he has, is just literally two like uh, walls that they constructed and they put some spider webbing on it to just replicate that for a good ten minute scene. And it's crazy because when you pan out, it looks like this tiny little box, (laughs) but they, they do a really good job. He also shows you a little bit of how the, the spider webs and the tenting, how they increased more and more as the season went on like i didn't notice that that the caterpillar tents you know we see little clips of it but it becomes more and more in the background so the prop people did a really good job of like showing all that decay that's happening and building as the season moves on in season two commonly known in the world of the fandom 
but was the response that some of the audiences had to this specific episode, uh, which unfortunately, uh, some people still are living in the dark ages and don't understand how to appreciate love in all of its forms. So some of the audience members were very vocal online and saying, oh, I'm never going to watch The Exorcist again because of the scene between Marcus and Peter. So uh, what was very nice is that the showrunner, uh, Slater, along with many of the cast and crew, responded in kind to these <laughs> lovely vocal people. Uh, Slater saying, quote... <laughs> Sign the exact quote because it's so good. <laughs> good. F you. He said the full word. I'm glad you didn't like it. I'm glad I ruined the show for you. You shouldn't have good things in your life. The end. That's <laughs> <laughs> one of my favorite responses that I've ever seen um, from somebody in a horror genre responding to haters. Um, as they should be. As they should be slammed down because this is the only way we can fight yeah. against uh, this kind of ignorance is to continue to be vocal when, when evil is said. We fight back and say that it's not allowed. Wasn't there also one when someone was, was insulting it and Ben Daniels was like, well, as a gay man, I was fine with the scene. There was something along those yes. lines. Like, he was like, it's like oh, it's, I don't mind you being gay, but could you keep it out of the TV show? And he was just like, no. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, here's a really gay picture of something. Yeah. <laughs> I can't remember. Ben Daniels, in more than one uh, tweet and instance, has been very vocal to people that have been had any kind of like homophobic outrage. Um, for instance, he says to the homophobes, and I quote, this is his Twitter, to the homophobes outraged by my three second male, male kiss in The Exorcist, here's two butch gender fluid lions, lions promoting their queer left agenda. And then it's just these <laughs> pictures. Yeah. <laughs> I loved it. That's <laughs> it. <laughs> And then he he goes back and forth with a few of them that were pretty vocal. And again, I just admire that kind of response. Um, there was also a mini fanfic that was created by Sean Crouch and Ben Daniels online regarding the, the love scene between Peter and Marcus. And by mini fanfic, um, <laughs> let, me, let me tell you what it was. So basically, so Sean Crouch being uh, one of the showrunners for season two, He's online talking with a few of the fans about the episode. And he says, my favorite part was the aftermath of that scene with Peter and Marcus. And I quote, two hot naked men reclining in glory in deck chairs on the bow of the boat, the moon high in the sky, a single shaft of light glittering on the calm inlet waters discussing faith and hope and dreams. Then Ben Daniel responds, and the stars and the scars and uh, he says there was fishing involved as well. So basically, <laughs> the two of them are creating just these visuals <laughs> for the fans to have. And it was, I remember just waking up that morning and reading it, like, before I was about to go, like, and have my coffee in the shower. And I was like, I can't handle this. I wasn't ready. <laughs> oh, where, so where, another fun fact, where, you remember where Truck was hitting his head against the wall? Um, it looks like it was a schoolhouse, and it was it basically that set was a was an old schoolhouse. No, um, where they filmed it, so it was cool. Those are the fun facts for this week. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure there's more. And again, thank you, I thank you so much. Um, so I think that is it. Yeah, we did it. So thank you, yeah, thank you. We did it. Yeah, we did it. Thank you, everybody, for listening again. Oh, thank, thank you. you. Woo!
Y'all have a great uh, week. We love you. Thank you for listening. And keep us posted if you have any ideas or want to hear something specifically. We'd love to hear from you. Take care.